Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, while you're turning there, I've got a few questions. And this is audience participation time. So if I said, um, or if you uh, heard someone say, I live a Christian lifestyle, what would that mean to you? Nothing, someone said. What would that mean to you? Someone said, I live a Christian lifestyle. Supposed to mean I resemble Jesus. Supposed to mean I resemble Jesus. Probably means to a lot of people that I go to church regularly. I go to church regularly. I think I'd ask them what that means to them. Always uh, appropriate to ask a follow-up question, I guess. I live a good life. I live a good life. Whatever good means nowadays. <laughs> if a non-Christian heard someone say, I live a Christian lifestyle, what would they think that meant? They were a Christian. Okay. You think you're a goody-two-shoes. Maybe you think you're a goody-two-shoes. Maybe you're saying you're, what's the phrase, holier than thou. Some people might think we're terrorists. Some people might think we're terrorists. Depending on your neighborhood, that's very true. What would they think? I live a Christian lifestyle. You don't smoke or chew or... You don't smoke or chew or run with those that do. A hypocrite. Kind of by definition, if you say you're a Christian, you're probably a hypocrite. That may be dangerously close to the truth sometimes. What if a politician said, I live a Christian lifestyle? How long is his nose? I'd like to say prove it. Prove it. Pinocchio nose. Check his... Check his closets. Check his closets. You might say check his browser history nowadays. That would uh, check his bank account. Um, looking for the Christian vote. So uh, you might wonder, well, why is he saying that? What's his What's his motive? What's his ulterior motive? Right. Well, the first parts of First Thessalonians four is where. Paul is encouraging us to live what you might describe as a Christian lifestyle. And last session, we looked at verses 1 through 8, and there were a lot of things that we were told to either do or not do. But I'll call your attention to verse 1. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. How to walk and to please God. That starts off our section here. And we're going to go through verse 12 today. And we have the bookend, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So here Paul is saying uh, it's important to live rightly before God. And it's important to live rightly before the world. And so we're going to look at that second part, but you'll see that uh, you can't, I mean, the, 
the division between those two things is is somewhat artificial. There, you can't divide the two. Uh, in fact, if you look at um, uh, in our first section um, where we're told to uh, control your own body and be in, in holiness. Verse 6 says, one of the reasons is that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this. So even when you're trying to live rightly before God, one of the implications of living rightly before God is that it also helps you to live rightly before your brother. And you'll see those two things connect. This echoes Jesus' statement. You'll recall when the scribe came up to Jesus and said, uh, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And we know what he said, and I'll quote it. The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So loving God and loving your neighbor would be another way to talk about this passage. And uh, that kind of sets our framework. And I'll toss one other thing as we go through this, that I want you to think about the things that you hear as it might apply to our culture and also how it might apply to uh, the idea of community. And I'll let you start to think about what those two words mean. Beginning at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So this is an interesting phrasing that uh, we use when you say, you know, I don't even need to mention what she was wearing, which means that you're about to talk all about what she was wearing, right? <laughs> so Paul says, you know, nobody needs to write you about this thing, but he's actually writing about this thing, right? So it's, it's, it's like a weird way, I don't know, I get, People have been talking about talking like this for a, literally millennia, but uh, it's kind of funny that we that we do that. Um, I don't need to talk to you about this, but I'm going to talk to you about this thing, and it's concerning brotherly love. Uh, we know this uh, term Philadelphia, of course, meaning brotherly love. That is the the Greek there, and as we go through these few verses, I'm going to suggest that. Brotherly love is kind of the theme for all of these verses. And again, it ties in with these concepts of uh, loving your neighbor. Uh, I'll submit that verse 9 talks about brotherly love as being a foundational love. Later verses talk about it being a generous love. I think there's evidence that it's a purposeful love and that it's also designed to be an admirable or attractive love. So those are going to be the four things that I hope to touch on today. A foundational love that Paul doesn't really need to mention. Uh, Pastor John Stott said, this is an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it's also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. And you'll see that as we're going along. This idea that Concerning brotherly love, I don't need to tell you about this. You have yourselves been taught by God. So what did Jesus, when he was 
teaching his disciples, giving those parting instructions, and I'm thinking of those chapters like John 14 and following, he said, you know, I'm telling you a lot of things, but I'm not going to be able to tell you everything. So what was the mechanism that they were going to continue to learn from? From the Holy Spirit, right? He said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who will teach you all these things. So when it says you've been taught by God to love one another, this is one of those Holy Spirit um, things that as a Christian, uh, the Holy Spirit will start to teach you what brotherly love looks like. It's uh, one of the foundational things of being a Christian. Uh, What do they say? You will know you're a Christian or we will know you're Christians by what? By our love. And that was, that was the idea here. Uh, brotherly love, this concept that uh, we are as Christians in community with each other. And it, we know that we've talked before that First Thessalonians was one of the earlier books in the New Testament written and one of the earlier ones that Paul wrote. And this idea that he's calling them brothers was somewhat novel. It wasn't, that was a term you mostly used for your family. And, but the early church has started calling each other brothers and sisters. So now Paul is using that in his writing to, to kind of capture that. And this was, this was new. Uh, you know, this idea of family uh, that we think of our church family, we say that all the time. Uh, that, that was a Christian thing. And, and so he's using that term brotherly love um, as something that was taught by God. And he goes on um, to talk about that it's, it's going to flow into a lot of things. Uh, I did find one commentator who, you know, and I'm amazed at these, uh, it, it almost seems to be a generational thing. You guys have heard letters from the past, and they just did English way better back then in, in many ways. I, 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 that's even awkward to say, but, but, but they, did, they did words better. <laughs> Here's how one pastor put it. What is love? He said, what's its nature? The nature of this brotherly love. He says, it is admiration, estimation, and perfect complacency in the Lord's people. It recognizes them as all brethren in Christ and fellow heirs of the grace of life. It includes attachment, fellowship, communion, spiritual adhesion, and unselfish conduct and conversation. What's brotherly love's extensiveness? It's not sectarian. It's not denominational. It's not local. It's not limited to persons of our order, creed, or mode of worship but it embraces every true saint of the Most High God, every disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus, every real Christian adorning the doctrine of God in all things and walking in the ways of holiness and eternal life. This brotherly love is extensive. I love that. And then it says, what are brotherly love's special traits? He says, it's the love of the heart. Therefore, it's not tinsel and make-believe. We talked about the fakeness that some people say, but he said, this guy says, it's not tinsel and make-believe. It is the love of a pure heart, not the love of a person with fleshly attachment, 
but love that's transparent as the light, purifying as the flame. It is a love that is both fervent and lasting. It knows nothing of coldness, formality, pretentiousness. Its utterances are immediate and emphatic, and its altar fire is ever clear and intense. Many waters cannot quench it. It will not be extinguished, nor will it expire, but burn and shine in loving words and loving deeds, always to the honor of religion and the glory of God. That's brotherly love. Could not improve on that, so I just read it. Verse 10. More than just a foundational love, I'm saying that this is a generous love in the sense that it goes beyond your own crew and clan. It says in verse 10, for that, this brotherly love, loving one another, that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So they were already going beyond their own borders, their own town. They were already showing brotherly love to those at a distance from them. And, you know, we use the term all the time, you know, it's a small world. Um, and in the Christian community, it's definitely a small world. You just make connections with people from all over. And, of course, um, for all of its badnesses, uh, our connectivity through the internet and so forth has made us more aware of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And I, I hope that we have a more global perspective on things. Uh, I hope that we aren't, um, you know, technology snobs thinking that we know more than other cultures do, or uh, I, I hope that we give ample respect to our brothers and sisters who are in other cultures. Um, I think that's what brotherly love would require. And he, he says, you know, I know you're doing it, but I, I want you to keep on doing it. Just do it more and more. And if you think about that, Paul was writing to this, this early church, but it's, it's, it's early in the movement, right? It's not a few thousand years later like it is now. It's early. He's trying to, to kind of keep this fire going, right? It, it's, it's not a blazing bonfire yet in, in all the world. It's just, it needs care, right? It needs a gent, you know, some gentleness about how things are going to go. And he says, this is what I want you to do. Just, just love people more and more. Verse 11, he says, I want you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. This is just like we do today, right? We just live quiet lives, minding our own business and taking care of ourselves, so that we don't depend on anybody, right? Isn't that just what we do? <laughs> I wish we did. So this is kind of interesting where he says it's to be your ambition to lay low. That's kind of opposite, right? You don't really think of ambition as my ambition is to stay out of the limelight, to uh, let other people have the credit, to live quietly. You could, I think all of us would probably say that this would be a good thing. Um, one commentator said that this word quiet did not really mean like the level of sound, like did not mean silence. Rather, the word quiet he says, it means 
less frantic, not less exuberant. So picture a love that is expressed through less franticness, if that's probably not a word, of being less frantic. Wouldn't that be a great thing? When, when our world is very much uh, frantic. But he says, be less frantic, but not less exuberant. So you can be excited and enthusiastic, but not in a not in a loud way or or a frantic way. That's a, it's an interesting concept there. Quiet lives. Um, Contextually, one commentator made the point that, you know, the Thessalonians had already kind of, you know, become a thing, so to speak, in the city of Thessalonica. This was a group of people that had already done away with their idols. They had already kind of, set themselves apart a bit as following um, a new God. Um, The Jews were upset with them because they weren't Jewish enough. Uh, They were kind of going against some of the things that that they thought you should do. Uh, The pagans didn't like them because they weren't playing along with the whole idol game anymore. So they had already raised a bit of a ruckus, and Paul is saying, you know, uh, let's play the long game here. Let's, let's, let's be quiet, you know, try to be uh, less frantic lives. You don't need to be calling a lot of attention to yourself. That's, that's the idea. He says to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Some translations say mind your own business, um, which is probably, probably a good thing. Um, Listen to this. Now, this is from a writer that I think was probably about 40 years ago, 40 to 50 years ago, okay? But it sounds very current. This person says, The longer I live, the more importance I see of adhering to the following. To hear as little as possible of what is to the prejudice of others. To believe nothing of the kind till I am forced to it. This is the idea of giving others the benefit of the doubt until there is no doubt, right? He says, always to moderate as far as I can the unkindness which is expressed toward others. Never to drink in the spirit of one who circulates an ill report. In other words, when you hear something bad about somebody, don't don't just be happy about that. Here's a good one. Always to believe that if the other side were heard, a very different account would be given. That's Proverbs, right? Every man seems right until you've heard the other side. And that's always true. He said, I consider love as a wealth. And as I should resist a man who comes to rob my house, so would I resist a man who would weaken my regard for any human being. I consider, too, that persons are cast in different molds. And to ask myself what I should do in that person's situation is not a just mode of judging. That's not fair. I must not expect a man who is naturally cold and reserved to act as one who is naturally warm and affectionate. I think it is a great evil that people do not make more allowance for each other in this particular. 
I would say that's still pretty good advice 50 years later, wouldn't you? To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, um, to mind your own business. I think inherent is that is, is the point that if we really mind our own affairs, we'll probably be plenty busy, right? I mean, minding your own affairs is enough work for me. Um, I, you know, who has time to worry about something else? But apparently plenty of people do, right? I don't do much social media. Um, uh, we kind of divide this up a little bit. Uh, Merritt follows Facebook and tells me whatever I might need to know, which thankfully is not very much. Um, I follow Instagram because I like the pictures. And now, of course, it's not just pictures, but the little movies, reels, whatever you call them. Apparently, the world has thought I'd like uh, to watch physics problems. So I get physics problems. It's amazing at the people that can be upset about how you work out a physics problem. Just downright mean about how you decide to solve that problem. I'm like, y'all, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, uh, yeah, they need to read some of this. So they're probably not Christians. What about this last part? Not just to live quietly and to mind your own business, but to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, the point here is not that you work with your hands, but that you work, that you support yourself. So remember that one of the hallmarks of the early church was that it was, um, in fact, the earliest bit of disagreement was, hey, we're all kind of, you know, banding together here, right? Because you had thousands of new Christians who had all traveled to Jerusalem and had kind of left their home. They didn't plan to stay longer. So the local saints were kind of supporting them. And this is when, you know, they shared things in common and all that sort of thing. But they said, well, what about the widows that don't have the resources? And then that's, you know, where we got our deacons to make sure that those people were served properly. Um, But here it says, what about work? So if you were a part of the Christian community, it became known that other people would help take care of you, right? They would support the people. Well, you know, like a, there's always some people who would take advantage of that. Christians are known for being generous. So I'm going to kind of hang out and let them practice that on me. Let them practice their generosity on me so maybe I don't have to work so much. And here Paul's kind of pushing back on that a little bit, saying no. Um, part of brotherly love is to working to support yourself so that other people don't have to, right? Um, yeah, work. Now, in Second Thessalonians, there's some stronger language about that um, and some people look at this verse when they've already know what's coming, you know, sometime later. And that's probably not totally fair. Here he's just saying, here's what brotherly love is. Live quietly, mind your own business, and take care of yourself so somebody doesn't have to, right? And I think that's, those are fair comments.
finally, verse 12, brotherly love is supposed to be an admirable love or an attractive love. It's supposed to be something that um, is inviting to other people. It says, and we've read part of this already, verse 12, do all these things so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that you can walk properly before outsiders. If you're in a particular culture, well, let me rephrase this. How you conduct yourself should be um, in keeping with, we might say, Christian standards, whatever that is. And we can disagree or agree on some of the minor points. But I found that most Christians, and I've been privileged to talk to many Christians from all different corners of Christianity. And I'll usually say, they'll say something about church, and I'll usually say something, well, what flavor do you go to? <laughs> I think that's a non-prejudicial way to kind of, you know, kind of see where they are. Um, and I found that the, the more authentic their Christianity is, the more they look alike, no matter what type of church they come from. Have you guys noticed this? Um, you go to something I, I've never been, but back in the day, mom and dad used to go to um, these big um, praise gathering events that the Gaithers would do. And, um, you know, the, the Gaithers are not Baptist. Um, they attract a wide swath of Christianity. Um, but there was probably a unity in that room because there were a lot of authentic Christians there. And so uh, it says to walk properly before outsiders. There is a certain standard that we need to uphold. And um, taking into account your culture plays a part of that. You'd, you don't want to be offensive to your culture um, because you want to be attractive. You know, you want Christianity to be an attractive thing, right? You want people to want to be with you and maybe even want them to be like you. I mean, how many times did Paul say, look at me, be like me, right? So, um, so we want Christianity to be something that uh, people um, aspire to, to be part of. Living as a Christian in America, more specifically living as a Christian in the South, um, we take a lot of things for granted, right? We can kind of almost assume that a person is either a Christian or should be, and it's almost almost like a power play sometimes, right? We don't have to subjugate our views in deference to somebody else, we can almost use some cultural peer pressure to ask them to adopt ours. You with me? What if you were a church in Cambodia where one or two percent of the population is Christian? Could you have that posture toward your culture? You could not. Right? 
you're in the minority. So think about Paul's advice as if you were in that church. Not offending people. Minding your own business. Not asking somebody else to take care of you. Brotherly love, right? Um, I was doing some research on, you know, what the underground church might look like, what the, um, uh, in other parts of the world and so forth. And I, I came across this story of Cambodia and um, that there was a period of time um, from around 2000 to 2015 or so where the number of Christians in the country doubled from like 150,000 to 300,000. I mean, that's, that's a lot. And the, the group that has the biggest footprint there are our brothers and sisters with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, our CMA uh, folks. And um, uh, they just, they have a big presence there and they've been leading and, and training people and it continued to do good work. So it led me to their website and I found it very interesting because they ask a question to their missionaries. And I think this is somewhat universal. I'll, I want to read a couple of these. They asked a question of their missionaries that said, um, what makes your location a hard place? All right? And listen to some of the things they said. I've worked in France for the last eight years. France is a hard place because of its emphasis on secular values. There are many atheists in France and many more who are agnostic. There's an underlying belief that the government will take care of them, which leads them to believe they don't need a deity. A culture of despair has resulted in violent demonstrations in many areas of France. Many French families live isolated lives. It's difficult to bridge this divide, but not impossible. But this does give us an opportunity to speak to people about our reason for the hope and coming. It's France. Listen to this. The city where I live is one filled with transient peoples and a difficult history layered with complexity. It's also a city that's historically collected social outcasts and is filled with people who've experienced pain at the hands of the church. The city is known as the capital of loneliness and overwhelmingly lacks an understanding of meaningful or consistent relationship. The deep work of chipping away at strongholds can be difficult, time-consuming, and discouraging when we are seeking to help them imagine that a deeply meaningful, trustworthy relationship is even possible, much less that God God longs to restore them to relationship with him. This is Berlin, Germany. Here's one from Africa. The missionary says, we're it. We are the only witness for a community of over 600,000 people. Our environment is very modern. We have grocery stores, delicious food, reliable infrastructure, but our challenge is the people. The local religion mixed with an oppressive political climate has everyone without hope and on edge. As a family, we lean into the language, the culture, and the relationships pushing ourselves to understand the mindset so that we can share the hope we have in a meaningful way. You hear what they say? We are leaning into their language, into their culture, into their mindset so that they can relate to them to share the hope of Christ. That is not the typical, I'm being very uh, stereotypical here, but I don't think that's the typical posture of America. 
right? Our posture is, our culture is better than yours, you need to adopt ours, right? And the thing is, our culture isn't our culture anymore. Listen to this. Our context is hard because the needs are so great. There are so many cultures living together. It's impossible to learn one language or contextual approach that can be applied across the board in our city. English classes or ministry center approaches don't work because the different cultures are unwilling to learn together. Therefore, even though the needs are enormous, we must approach them individually one by one, trusting the Holy Spirit to guide us to the next person or family in need and to give us what we need to love them well in his name. Atlanta, Georgia. Tying this together, this first passage, that, the first part of the passage that Dad talked about last week, we talked about sanctification, right? Holiness, where Paul's asking Christians to get their own house in order before God. One Alliance missionary ties those things together, and I'll close with this. He says, or she says, my unhealthy and unchrist-like response to the circumstances I am in makes where I am a hard place. I am my own worst enemy. Therefore, being sanctified is key. Satan will always try to take us out of action by messing with our marriage or our family. We can live at the gates of hell when we have a strong family united toward a common purpose. But I'm not sure we can even stand to live in heaven if we are living with division, disunity, and strife in the family. The other thing that makes this place hard is trying to work with teammates, especially us Westerners who are so individualistic and have such a hard time laying down our rights. Overlaying all three of these is a spiritual warfare that Satan tries to use to make our lives so hard that we give up. Facing demon-possessed people, groups who want to kill us, no electricity or running water, and disease is all small in comparison to the spiritual warfare we face. So, living rightly before God makes us more equipped to live rightly before the world. Over the course of the week, reread verses 1 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians and get this, loving God and loving your neighbor, um, being right with God so that you can be better right with your neighbor. Kind of look at it through that lens of how does that affect how I relate with my culture, with my community? Um, how does it affect how I respond online or in social media or with acquaintances? Um, and I know there are probably times that we need to stand up for justice and we need to, you know, be salt and light in our world. And I get that. But I think uh, this is a call toward balance. And when all those things are fueled by this foundational brotherly love, then I think we've got a better shot at getting the right note. Comments? Bebe? Ladies first. <laughs> I would spend Thanksgiving at Beulah Bean.